This is an RNZ podcast. 40,000 packed into Eden Park. Three's free-to-air coverage of the game broke records with 1.2 million New Zealanders watching. Crowds up inside Tokoro, 16,500 on the bank at Okata Park, amazing. And then the groundswell goes from there and uh, 42,000 odd at Eden Park on Saturday night, just the culmination of a wonderful six weeks. That was sportscaster Scotty Stevenson last Monday on the Project Show on TV Channel 3, summing up the Women's Rugby World Cup final experience from his perspective as the TV anchorman of the most watched women's game ever in New Zealand. That's both from the stands and on the screen, free to air on 3 and the online streaming service for subscribers only, Spark Sport. Now, aside from it being a white-knuckle sporting spectacle, people are now also talking about the tournament as transformational for women's sport in this country and even for our wider society. I took a look at how the media handled those big themes and whether we'd be having that debate at all if the Ferns had lost in this week's Midweek Media Watch with Karen Hay on Nights here on RNZ National. We also talked about whether social media's social impact is overstated by the news media and we marked the anniversary of an exploding whale. That's Midweek Media Watch on the RNZ website if you missed it or you'll find it in our podcast feed. But last Tuesday, the Women's Rugby World Cup organising committee boss Margaret Hooper told RNZ's morning report the mass audience that was delivered by free-to-air TV was crucial to the tournament's success. Spark Sport did their best to get that agreement with um, TV3 and do the free-to-air partnership, but broadcast in general is not something that we control. That was done by World Rugby. Uh, and I think that having at least having those finals matches on um, free-to-air and the delayed coverage during the tournament of the pool stage matches with the Blackburns at least meant that New Zealanders were able to watch, even if it was delayed, and at least having the final live um, is proved to be um, absolute necessity. But earlier on it was test matches splitting the TV audience that angered women's rugby advocates when New Zealand rugby carelessly created a clash by overlapping an All Blacks test with the Black Ferns quarter-final. And at the time, Cabinet Minister Kitty Allen took to Twitter to say this. For tips on how to plan a world standard women's World Cup, suggest you take some tips from FIFA, who set the standard last weekend with their draw. Now there, Kitty Allen was referring to the somewhat stodgy ceremony in Auckland recently which decided who plays who when the FIFA Women's Football World Cup plays out here and in Australia next year, another landmark for women's sport in New Zealand. But those who follow the tortured politics of world football were well aware that its governing body, FIFA, is no ethical benchmark when it comes to handing out those tournaments. The FIFA World Cup for men, the world's single biggest sporting tournament, kicks off in Qatar in the early hours of Monday, but it's been controversial ever since FIFA picked the Gulf state as the host more than a decade ago. Now That decision brought about the downfall of FIFA's long-serving and notoriously self-serving president, Sepp Blatter, who this week called the whole thing a mistake. But almost every pundit and commentator has been saying that ever since the corrupted bidding process which Sepp Blatter and his FIFA colleagues oversaw with their eyes wide open. Ken Bensinger, a Pulitzer-nominated investigative New York Times reporter, described them like this. Being a member of FIFA is like being in a secret garden that you never want to leave. There's an unspoken code that you could do whatever you want. You're a master of the sporting universe and more powerful in many cases than politicians and others because they come and go, but you stay in that job, you stay in that seat year after year. Well, that's part of FIFA Uncovered, a timely Netflix documentary series lifting the lid on why and how this World Cup was awarded to a tiny territory that's clearly not suited to it, but one with an unlimited budget 
for boosting its global reputation. Indeed, critics are now calling this the world's costliest sports-washing exercise, even putting the Beijing Olympics in the shade, and some are even now comparing it to the Berlin Olympics 70 years earlier. Now, the PR budget for Qatar's World Cup includes millions for celebrity endorsements, like this one from former England captain-turned-showbiz superstar David Beckham. It's one of the best spice markets that I've ever been to. This is perfection for me. Qatar really is an incredible place to spend a few days on a stopover. I cannot wait to bring my children back. And Qatar is also covering the costs of entire squads of travelling World Cup fans from England, the Netherlands, Australia and other countries in return for glowing praise of Qatar posted on social media. But not everyone is so welcome to join in the fun. Same-sex relationships are illegal, so gay fans are effectively excluded or admitted on a don't-tell-don't-ask basis, contrary to FIFA's own anti-discrimination obligations. And that prompted comedian Joe Lysett, the host of The Great British Sewing Bee and the BBC's Travel Man Show, currently screening here on TBNZ, to give David Beckham this ultimatum. I'm giving you a choice. If you end your relationship with Qatar, I'll donate this 10 grand of my own money, that's a grand for every million you're reportedly getting, to charities that support queer people in football. However, if you do not, at midday next Sunday, I will throw this money into a shredder just before the opening ceremony of the World Cup and stream it live on a website I've registered called benderslikebeckham.com. Not just the money, but also your status as a gay icon will be shredded. Well, hours from kickoff, it does look like that cash will indeed be shredded. But that's not the only human rights problem for the Qatar World Cup. FIFA has denied some teams permission to wear pro-human rights slogans. And while sportswear manufacturers usually pay handsomely to turn a nation's players into human billboards for their product, Denmark's supplier Hummel has removed its logo from the Danish kit in order to preserve its reputation. Now, the most direct response so far to all this has come from Australia's footballers at the World Cup. 16 players took part in the video message calling on the host nation to decriminalise same-sex relationships and to help any migrant workers who've been denied their rights. Football Australia followed the statement with its own, saying the suffering felt by workers and their families could not be ignored. Let's hear some of that powerful message now from the players. It's just been released this morning. We have learned that progress has been made both on paper and in practice. The kafala system has largely been dismantled, working conditions have improved, and a minimum wage has been established. Whilst the reforms established in Qatar are an important and welcome step, their implementation remains inconsistent and requires improvement. We have learned the decision to host the World Cup in Qatar has resulted in the suffering and in the harm of countless of our fellow workers. These migrant workers who have suffered are not just numbers. Like the migrants that have shaped our country and our football, they possess the same courage and determination to build a better life. Around 6,000 migrant workers are estimated to have died building the stadiums in Qatar under appalling conditions, and many thousands more were employed under the kafala system which bound them to the employers who sponsored their visas. But as media began to arrive in Qatar this past week, FIFA's top brass told all nations taking part, this. We try to respect all opinions and beliefs without handing out moral lessons to the rest of the world. Please, let's now focus on the football. And that poses a bit of a dilemma for the media too. 
Does looking forward to the World Cup make me a bad person? News Talk ZB sportscaster Jason Pine asked himself in a New Zealand Herald article on Thursday, concluding that he wouldn't turn away from the beautiful game, even though it was being played in what he called the ugliest of theatres. Meanwhile, his ZB sports colleague Darcy Waldegrave was posing a similar question on air last Thursday. I'm a Formula One fan. I love Formula One. Seeing Formula One in Saudi Arabia, seeing in Abu Dhabi, seeing it in Russia. And then if you look, are we putting our Western morals and values on a country? Do we have a right to do that? United States of America is pretty morally corrupt. They're telling women what to do with their bodies. You can't have an abortion in most places. They overturned that, what was it, the Roe Wade decision. All of these states now, it's illegal to have an abortion. Man. If that's not morally corrupt, I don't know what is. Do I stop watching the NBA? Where do I end? Look, I could get confused. I could go on ranting and screaming and raving for half an hour, but no one wants to hear that. Some media are mixing coverage of both aspects. The UK's Guardian, for example, has a section embedded in its sports website called Qatar Beyond the Football. And the front person for the BBC's comprehensive TV coverage, respected former striker Gary Lineker, has told other media its coverage won't just be focused on the football. Yeah, we'll be talking about them, and that's that's the whole thing that we're going through at the moment is, you know, is how do we do that? We've got the opening game, and I'm sure we'll discuss the issues of, of human rights, of homophobia, of the problems with the stadiums and the lives lost in, in workers' rights, etc. I mean, the Guardian's uh, we'll be, put we'll, that, I think, at yeah. up to 6,500 migrant workers' lives lost. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know the exact number, and I think factually that there are... That there's a debate to be had on the actual number yeah. but it's obviously a, a staggering amount and it's it's awful it's awful but yes we will be obviously covering that. Gary Lineker also told the news agents podcast there were no red lines and no one at the BBC FIFA or Qatar has told him what not to say on the air. Now, New Zealand football fans won't be able to focus on our football team. They fell short in a one-off playoff in Qatar back in June. But New Zealand sports reporter Kern Lammers was there, and now he's back in Qatar reporting for RNZ and other outlets on the main event now getting underway. Back in June, he pointed out on RNZ's website that the last two World Cup tournaments in Brazil and in Russia also had problems with corruption and organisation, and he said... Qatar will no doubt be different to previous events. And, judging by those experiences, that could in fact be a good thing. But while Kern Lammers mentioned the culture clash about alcohol for sale in Doha, he made no mention of the suffering and deaths amongst migrant labour or those oppressive laws curtailing human rights and press freedom. So, just before he set off for Qatar this week, I asked will that be part of the picture for him and his coverage and who will call the shots in Qatar over what we see in our media. Certain media, especially certain European media who are more news-focused than sports-focused, will continue to look for those sideline stories because the big media outlets will have several crews there, BBC or uh, you know, a German, French, Dutch TV. They'll be there with you know, multiple news crews. Now, they'll be looking for news from the, you know, from the field, from the training sessions, from the press conferences, but also from what's going on in Doha, what's going on in Qatar, and then eventually it's easy pickings to follow up on you know the, uh, the the items that have already been in the news yeah and some outlets for example the guardian has the section cut up beyond the football which they're embedding right into their actual uh, sports coverage it's the preview stuff at the moment you know throughout the tournament when the game's going on anyone browsing the section will see that stuff 
as well. Uh, do, you, do you think that's a good approach? Is that actually effective? Yeah, it's really interesting um, how sports fans approach this. I, I mean, I, I, I talk to a lot of people who go to the World Cup from different countries around the world, and there's only a few. And it's not, it seems to be mainly uh, people in... Uh, in countries uh, in in Scandinavia, Germany, and Holland, who've actually who I know who are in in large numbers make a have taken a moral stand and said, "Are oh, we not going to Qatar? Is the first World Cup we're not going to because of what's going on there?" But for the majority of uh, fans, they know, they read, they they you know they'll acknowledge and be aware of of the issues in Qatar, how much that will influence how they're going to experience the tournament. That's unclear. I think the moment the football starts inside the stadiums. What you see on your screen is the same wherever it is. You could literally put, I think you put the World Cup on the moon and uh, the experience at home would be exactly the same. The moment you switch on your TV, the green square that you're watching, that's going to be exactly the same. And how much people will uh, take notice of of, of the news on the, on the sidelines, uh, how much that will influence their opinions or further how much that will influence their actions, I'm I'm not sure. Partly that's, I mean, FIFA kind of controls or has done for those tournaments, controls the entire the zone around the stadium, all official commercial partners, the accredited broadcasters and so on. Uh, it's like it really isn't taking place in the host country at all. It's kind of FIFA territory. Will that be the same in Qatar or given that <laughs> Qatar is spending so much uh, and uh, are they going to be controlling the access and will it be there uh, imperatives and their policies that hold sway over the actual venues? Well, the Qataris would be silly if they mess with it too much because FIFA has obviously developed a really slick machine. You know, the Qataris would be silly to to mess with that. But from what we saw during the Intercontinental Playoff when when I was there for New Zealand and Costa Rica, uh, it is a very different scenario from previous World Cups. The, the big difference that I've noticed is that the Qataris don't seem to be that interested in impressing FIFA, whereas previous hosts fall over themselves to make sure that all the FIFA people are happy. So in the venues, um, the Qatari person who runs the stadium is definitely in charge. But during the Intercontinental Playoff, it was very much the, the FIFA person asking the Qatari chief in that particular venue whether they were happy with this decision. And at times when the Qataris felt like it, they would change the FIFA rules and say, no, 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 we're not doing that. This is what we're going to do. So that's going to be really interesting how that's going to work. So from that point of view, it's a really different Qatar's gold in doing this, the reason it's spending a reported 200 billion US dollars, uh, well, people call it sports washing, don't they? It's it's not just about running a successful sports event and hoping to get the benefits of that. This is a national project. It's something to make the country uh, look good and elevate it. I mean, a bit bit a bit like uh, Russia in, in 2018. Yeah, it's oh, it's, it's it's very similar. And uh, the interesting thing was in Russia, uh, I went for the the warm up tournament, which is the Confederations Cup, where New Zealand played uh, against Russia. There were armored vehicles everywhere, checkpoints. You'd have uh, guys with machine guns, and uh, it was it really felt. And you arrived at the airport, and you got drilled by, uh, you know, by customs people. Um, and obviously, they got a lot of feedback on that, and they took that feedback on board. And suddenly, when we came back a year later for the, the World Cup proper, all the all the army had had disappeared out of sight. Suddenly, in uniform, there were only really handsome-looking uh, 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 soldiers or you know, uh, female soldiers. Or you know, they pretended to be soldiers. Basically, a bunch of top models at every security point. 
everyone was much more welcoming and it was a very, very different approach. So they had definitely tried their hardest to, you know, to be hospitable. And the Russians, when we went into the provinces, they constantly kept asking you, oh, yeah, are you being treated well? And are people looking after you? They were really yeah, aware that for the first time, a massive amount of people, a million people were, were roaming all over the country, basically without controls. And that's something that Russia never had to deal with. And then during the tournament, you felt that the authorities started to relax. And at the end of the tournament, they even announced that some of the visa requirements would be scratched after that tournament because they realized it's actually not, it's actually a really good thing to have so many uh, foreign visitors. Um, whereas what I've seen in Qatar and the demands and the visas and uh, uh, the permits that you need in Qatar are you know, uh, way beyond anything I've seen in, in China or even in Russia. When when I was looking up your number to arrange the interview, I noted you know you've got your own operation, Lemus Consulting, and you say you know uh, for for the other work you do, I guess unrelated to sports, there's a great story behind every organisation. Let us tell that story. There will be people perhaps from Qatar looking and making sure or hoping you know in the output of yourself and other journalists that there will be a positive image of Qatar coming out of it, uh, as well as you know just what's going on on the pitch. At the moment, they're basically putting out a press release just about every day, and that this is from you know from uh, press releases about how welcome people are, the venues, the the things you can do in Qatar. They had one this week around uh, accessibility, so they uh, they had a big press conference with a, a whole lot of representatives from different disability uh, organisations in Qatar, uh, celebrating that these stadiums will be the most accessible in the history of the World Cup. Um, so they are trying really, really hard. To obviously sell their own country, which is which is fine, which is what you know, which is what every country does when you when you host a World Cup. But what I've noticed is that a lot of the uh, the things that they're trying to promote um, are probably not that of much interest to most foreign visitors. <laughs> Do you feel under any yeah, pressure they... to write about it or include it in your in your report? Or no, have no, no, no. You can no, just no, no, no. We do the same for the Women's World Cup. There's a whole operation, uh, a government operation now with with representatives from from different government agencies trying to figure out how they can sell New Zealand to all the visitors that are coming for the Women's World Cup. We do the same. Mm. I have not seen any influence of any kind from from the Qataris. Yeah, you you wrote a um, you wrote a piece for the RNZ website about that where you noted the, the their slogan in Qatar was expect amazing uh, for the World Cup and you made the point this idea of amazing they have might not be what um, football fans uh, idea of, of amazing is it's going to be different but you pointed out in 2014 the World Cup before last in Brazil and in 2018 the Russia World Cup that we mentioned you said there was nervousness among fans and people that this was not going to be you know a safe or, or happy World Cup turned out Qatar will be no different than previous events and judging by those experiences that could be a good thing and when you were there in June for those intercontinental playoffs which you know as we know unfortunately didn't work out well uh, for New Zealand um, yes you wrote that piece sort of setting the scene I mean back then you, you mentioned like in passing that labour issues but you didn't dwell on you know the the human rights aspects, the migrant workers and stuff. Uh, but you know it was only a short piece. But do you feel under pressure not to mention those things, or will you be wary of doing it when you're there? Uh, no, I think um, 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 if appropriate, there is absolutely no no reason not to not to do it. And um, the yeah, it is it is you know within within the confines well, the confines of what you know uh, or what what you know, um, how much reporting I uh, will be doing from uh, from Qatar. There's obviously only so much scope, and even it basically depends on. For example, I'll be uh, I'll be talking to a morning report every uh, every day, 
um, what the questions will be. And their questions will be about the games that are going on right there because that's right in front of mind. And well, would you have an eye the... on what might develop, though, if there are going to be, I believe, um, I think you mentioned to me that the Netherlands squad has said, we want to go and meet some migrant workers. We want to get out of the bubble. Yep. You know, the Netherlands players actually want to do that, which could be a bit of a media event in itself. So these things that are going on in the background, will you have, be able to have half an eye on some of that? Oh, totally. And, I mean, it's and it's pretty obvious. It's like when I was there in June, you know, it's, it's, it's hard not to... Uh, and I'm uh, and I'm uh, lucky that I'm staying with a Qatari local, so uh, he is. You know, he's been. It's that's been really helpful as well to get some background information on you know how you know what's going on every day there. When we were there, it was 51 degrees. It was insanely hot, and seeing um, the mainly Nepalese, Bangladeshi, Indian workers, you know, getting bussed in from their from their worker villages on the outskirts of Doha in the morning and then in the midday heat, they go back to their base and they eat and they sleep and then they all come back about four o'clock in the afternoon and they, they do the rest of their shift. Uh, to watch those guys in the, you know, in 50 degree heat is, you know, it, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to work out that that's you know, pretty insane. If you put it in the context though, because I was talking to, to a few locals about this, the comment that they made is, it's the Qatari government under pressure from FIFA. FIFA have been doing a lot of work on this, um, and obviously the pressure from the international media and the international community. Uh, be doing a lot of work tidying up and and creating minimum wage and tidying up their worker rights. It's not. I don't think because they want to do it, but because there's so much pressure. But then the ability for them to enforce it to the companies, because for example, all the roading work in Doha that I could see were done by Indian contractors. They transfer what they how they operate in India. To Qatar, so I'm not entirely au fait with worker rights in India, but I don't think they'll be up up the standard of New Zealand or or Europe. So mm. I think that's in the background as well that they're hiring companies to do that kind of work who might already have pretty poor health and safety standards. Uh, the Danish TV crew, I think, on their first day in the country this past week, you know, have found themselves in a bit of a story when, a, as perhaps, an overzealous security guard, uh, you know, f- forbade them permission to film. Uh, I think even threatened to damage their camera at one point. No, 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 we don't need permit. Yeah, no, no, but 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 no, but, listen, but, listen, but, listen, but you can break the camera. You want to break the camera? Okay, you break the camera. Okay. So you're threatening us by by by, by smashing the camera. Uh, there's been an apology for that, but you think that's a sort of thing we might see um, as the tournament goes on if, if uh, foreign crews try to do things outside of the bubble and possibly rub uh, local uh, local enforcement up the wrong way? I think there'll be hundreds of incidents like that. Uh, Michael Burgess from the from the New Zealand Herald and myself, we had an incident like that uh, in the stadium. We were we needed to work in the media room and uh, you know which is normally always open. But the Qataris had decided that it wasn't going to open until two days, two hours before the game, and we we're all, you know, we're way out away from our our, um, our hotel, so we decided to stay in the stadium and work after a press conference. But then a soldier just stood in the hallway and decided, no, you can't come in. So he had his, yeah, um, there was absolutely no budging. So then, um, oh, two um, of you couldn't you have taken them on? No, no, bad idea. Well, could have, but then, the, <laughs> but then, but then, but then, interesting, interesting the dynamic then came to play. The Qatari. He had to ask the Qatari. The Qatari said, no, no, not happening. You just have to go away. And um, you need to come back at 7 o'clock or 5 o'clock, whatever it was. And then the FIFA person came past. So we we said, well, can you please talk to these people? We need to work there. It was literally like the door was open. It was five metres away from us. And and the FIFA, um, the FIFA person kindly asked the Qatari head of the stadium. And the Qatari said, no, nah, absolutely no way, black and white. So we were sent on our bike. And uh, we had to find ourselves somewhere else to work. And uh, and that was just a really tiny example 
But I think this will happen over and over and over. And uh, for me, the closest thing that I can compare it to is is the Beijing Olympics, which was very much like that. Some uh, absolutely uh, Ill- illogical uh, decisions by a security guard or a commander of the police or, or, or a trans, uh, you know, a, a traffic officer who decides suddenly two kilometers from the stadium that he's going to block that road off and you all have to start w- walking. That's going to be happening in Qatar, and that's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, especially if you've got 200 kilos of camera equipment with you. Um, so we're going to get a lot of that because media here, I, I used to just go anywhere and they film anywhere. Um, but in, in the accreditation documents that everyone had to sign, there were quite clear instructions of, you know, that you needed permission to to film in a lot of public areas and a lot of uh, government buildings and government property, et cetera. I fear that they'll try and clamp down on that like they did with the Danes. Once this will be happening, you know, uh, 10 times a day with different crews and the whole international media will start ganging up on them, they might have to relax that a bit. So I think it's it'll be a really interesting space to watch. And the same with um, with the fans, obviously. they You know, with the fans, they think they, they can control a million fans. Well, I think that will be really difficult. So um, they have brought in 4,000 riot police from Turkey, you know, who's their friendly friendly uh, ally in the region if they're going to let them loose on uh, you know on a, on a horde of uh, half intoxicated english fans that could be a really interesting scenario sports reporter kern lammers there who's now in qatar covering his fifth fifa world cup for rnz and for other outlets the tournament gets underway in the early hours of monday the 21st and runs until the week before christmas and next week here on media watch we hope to hear from a former fifa official turned whistleblower who now runs a publishing business that helps lift the lid on sports corruption through investigative reporting.